for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to continue our tour of the Outer Planes as presented in 1st Edition Dungeons & Dragons, Manual of the Planes by Jeff Grubb. So, next stop on our tour is Gladsheim, and this is where uh, Grubb pictured the home of the Norse gods. Now, he did take some liberties, but he actually got several details uh, right when he was making this entry. He did place Yggdrasil, the Norse world tree, as a permanent portal in this plane. He also gets many of the names and the the gods that are associated with those realms, he does get that correct as well. Well, mostly there's a couple places where I think he took a little bit of liberty, but for the most part, as I said, very accurate. So I think when they were writing the book, they did do a bit of research on it. So before we take a look at how the Gladsheim plane is pictured in Manual of the Plains, let's take a look at Norse cosmology, and we know quite a bit about how the Norsemen and the ancient Scandinavians, how they viewed the cosmos. Before, I mentioned the cosmic world tree, Yggdrasil, and according to Scandinavian beliefs, there were nine realms or worlds that existed on Yggdrasil, and there's a variety of different ways that artists have tried to interpret it, but for the most part, the names are the same. It's just that, how again, how they're picturing how the realms fit on the world tree, it does vary. I mean, some of the artistic representations I've seen, well, first, let's start with the first plane, and that is Midgard, and this is the world of, of men. So this is basically our world. We are on Midgard. That's usually pictured at the center of the tree. Now above the tree are two worlds. First, there's the highest, Asgard. And this is the home of the gods. It's ruled over by Odin. And he. Uh, there's actually several Uh, regions within Asgard, each one is home to a different god or goddess. And I'd like to read a bit from a poem called Grimnir's Sayings that does describe several of these realms. So the, uh, what I'm reading is from the Poetic Edda, and this is a collection of Old Norse poems. The version I am using is from Oxford University Press, translated by Carolyn Larrington. Now, in the poem Grimnir's Sayings, uh, Odin was trying to test one of his, well, not really a foster child, but a child that he had raised and eventually became a king. However, uh, the person in question here, known as Gerard, he receives a message that implies that Odin, who is taking the form of a traveler in disguise, is actually there to 
to kill him or do him harm. So he has Odin placed between fires for eight days. Well, Geriad's brother, Agnar, he takes pity on Odin and he gives him a drink of mead. And before Odin escapes and gives the appropriate punishment to Gerard, he gives him some wisdom. So he tells Agnar about the various realms of the gods. So here we go. Blessed shall you be, Agnar, since Odin bids you be blessed. For one drink you will never get a better reward. The land is sacred, which I see lying near the Aesir and the Elves. But in Thirdheim, Thor shall remain, until the powers are torn asunder. Udale, it is called, the place where Uller has made a hall for himself. Elfheim, the gods gave to Freyr, in bygone days as tooth payment. There is a third home where the cheerful powers roofed the hall with silver. Valaskalif, it is called which the god made for himself in bygone days. So Gvabek is fourth, and is called Cool Waves resound over it. There Odin and Saga drink every day, joyful from golden cups. Gladsheim, a fifth, is called. There gold-bright Vahal raises peacefully, seen from afar. There Odin chooses every day those dead in combat. It is very easy to recognize for those who come to Odin, to see how his halls arranged. The hall has spear shafts for rafters. With shields it is thatched. Mail coats are strewn on the benches. It's very easy to recognize for those who come to Odin, to see how his halls arranged. A wolf hangs in front of the western doors, and an eagle hovers above. Thrymheim, the sixth is called, where Thiazi lives, the terrible giant. But now Skadi, the shining bride of the gods, lives in her father's ancient courts. Bribaldic is the seventh, where Baldur has made a hall for himself. In that land where I know there are the fewest evil plots. Himinbjorg is the eighth. And there, they say, Heimdall rules over the sanctuaries. There, the glad watchman of the gods drinks good mead in the comfortable hall. Folkvang is the ninth, where Freya assigns the choice of seats in the hall. Half the slain she chooses every day, and half Odin owns. Glintnir is the tenth. It has golden buttresses, and likewise is roofed with silver. And there Forseti lives most days, and puts to sleep all quarrels. Noten is the eleventh, where Nord has a hall made for himself. The prince of men, lacking in malice, rules over the high-timbered temple. Brushwood grows in high grass widely in Vidar's land. And there, the son proclaims on his horse's back that he's keen to avenge his father. Enhermir has Sidhimir boiled in Eldhermir. I probably totally mispronounced those, I apologize. The best of pork, but few know by what the Einhanir are nourished. 
Gary and Frecky, tamed to war, he satiates, the glorious father of hosts. But on wine alone, the weapon-magnificent Odin always lives. Hugin and Munin fly every day over the wide world. I fear for Hugin that he will not come back. Yet I tremble more for Munin. Thund roars. The great wolf's fish swims in the stream. The river's current seems very great for those rejoicing in slaughter to wade. Valgrind is called, standing on the plain, sacred before the holy doors. Ancient is the gate, but few know how it is closed up with a lock. Five hundred doors and forty, I think there are in Vahal. Eight hundreds of warriors will go together from one door when they go to fight the wolf. Five hundred daisies and forty at so, I think Bilskinir has in all. Of all those halls which I know to be roofed, my son's, I think, is the greatest. After several verses, the uh, poem continues to give us a little bit more about the Norse cosmology. Three roots there grow in three directions under the ash of Yggdrasil. Hell lives under one, under the second the frost giants, and third humankind. Radistuk is the squirrel's name who has to run upon the ash of Yggdrasil. The eagle's word he must bring from above and tell to Nidhogg below. So the uh, way that they pictured it at the top of the world tree was a great eagle that in some sources say has a hawk sitting between his eyes. And at the bottom of the tree is the dragon Nidhogg, who is chewing on the roots of Yggdrasil. And Radistook, that squirrel, he, well, he's a gossip, we could say. He tells the eagle all the things that the dragon is saying about him. And then the eagle says bad things about the dragon, and then he runs down the tree and tells the dragon uh, what the eagle just said about him. But also underneath Yggdrasil, it's said that there is a well, the well of Erd. And there are three goddesses there called the Norns. Erd, Verhandi, and Skuld. These are similar to the three fates from Greek mythology. It's said that they spin the, the threads that control the destiny of men and gods alike. Also, it's said by this well is the head of Mimir. A Mimir was one of the Vanir, who we'll talk about in a moment, and he was sent to live among the As, the uh, Aesir. And I forgot the exact reason why, but his head was cut off, but uh, Odin actually managed to keep his head alive, and it's said that he would consult Mimir's head for advice and wisdom. So that's Asgard. And if you've seen the Th- the movies for Thor, you're probably familiar with that. And I in, I mentioned Valhall, so that's just how it is uh, listed in the translation I have. And more people would recognize the name Valhalla. So that's the home of the warriors who have died in battle. So Valhalla is actually not a realm unto itself. It's just a smaller part of Asgard. Well, below Asgard is Elfheim, 
and this is the land of the elves. I mentioned before we have Midgard in the center, and some interpretations I've seen of Yggdrasil picture the next four realms being in each of the cardinal directions. So it's said that the furthest north is Niflheim. This is the world of ice and cold, and it's said to be where the frost giants live. To the south is Musfelheim, and this is the land of fire, and this is where the fire giants live, ruled by the giant Surt. And it's said that he will uh, destroy the world after Ragnarok, the final battle between good and evil. Now, the other two realms are supposed to be to the east and the west. I believe uh, Jotunheim, the home of the giants, is usually pictured to the east. I might be wrong about that. As I said, it all depends on the interpretation. But Jotunheim is land of the Jotun, or Jotun, I've also heard it pronounced. And these are essentially the giants. This realm is said to consist of rocky mountains and wilderness and dense forests. Giants from Norse mythology do appear in Dungeons and Dragons uh, in the form of the frost giants and the fire giants. There were other types of giants as well, and these would probably translate to things like your stone giants and your uh, mountain giants. Usually, the giants are at odds with the gods. And it's not always the case, though. See, most giants were not necessarily evil, but they were chaotic. They're often seen to to represent the primordial uh, forces of nature. So even though they do tend to have conflicts with the gods they will aid them at times. And it's also said that uh, some of the gods have intermarried with some of the giants. One of the most notable is Skadi. And she is the Norse goddess of winter and revenge. Now, according to uh, Norse legend, what happened was uh, Odin and the other gods had killed her father, uh, Theazi. And she uh, came to avenge her father. Now, the gods didn't want to fight him, her, so they offered to, you know, they offered to uh, make amends with her. And they offered to let her choose one of the gods as her husband, but she'd have to do it by looking just at his feet. And she saw the most beautiful pair of feet and thought they would belong to Balder but it actually belonged to Nord, uh, one of the Vanir. So their marriage it was said to be a bit unusual because they would try to spend time in each other's realms, but Scotty did not like the, the seaside um, realm that Nord had control over, and Nord did not like the cold Arctic realm that uh, Scotty had uh, had control over. Now, there's also another little bit of Norse mythology here, and that we got to talk about Loki. And again, Loki in Norse mythology 
uh, quite a bit different than how we picture him in, uh, you know, Marvel Comics. And, you know, a lot of people are familiar with that version of Loki. But as part of the deal uh, to have to avoid fighting Scotty, she challenged the gods to make her laugh. So Loki tied a rope around his genitals and then tied the other end of the rope to a goat's genitals. And they did this little dance and prancing around and uh, apparently that made Scotty laugh. And uh, Loki, always an interesting character. Well, the other side is Vanaheim. And I've mentioned the term Vanir, and I've also mentioned the term Aesir. So what's the difference between the two? The Aesir are gods that are usually associated with the sky and war. So a lot of the more well-known Norse gods fall into this category. Uh, For example, Odin, Thor, uh, Balder, Tyr... The Vanir, though, are gods that are often associated more with peace, prosperity, the earth, and magic. And they came from a realm called Vanaheim. Well, below the uh, world of Midgard are two other realms. First, there is Svartaheim, and this is also sometimes called Nidvalir. And this is the home of the dwarves, or sometimes they're also called the uh, dark elves. Now, the dwarves, like the dwarves in Dungeons and Dragons, are expert blacksmiths and craftsmen. So they're often pictured as creating wonderful uh, treasures and powerful weapons for the gods. And then finally, we have Helheim, or some versions just call it Hell. And this is spelled H-E-L, so not the same way as uh, hell as pictured in you know, Christianity or, or uh, Islam or many other religions. So whereas Asgard is the home of the, uh, of the honored dead, those who fell in battle, Helheim is, well, some people call it the home of this, the dishonorable dead. These would be people who didn't die in battle, so people who died of old age. And it's not necessarily a place of punishment for those people. It's kind of like Hades as pictured in Greek mythology. So those who ended up in Helheim, they just had this bleak, gray existence. Now, it's not. this is not to say that the Norsemen didn't believe in punishment in the afterlife. It's also said that murderers, thieves, and criminals would also go to Helheim, but they would be punished. And I don't remember if it was a poem I read it in or if it was uh, one of the other prose stories, but one of the punishments that I remember was they would be forced into this hall where they would have to wade through a river of swords while being uh, having serpents spew venom upon them. So that, in a nutshell, is how the Norsemen viewed the cosmos around them. So now let's move on to Manual of the Plains. 
Jeff Grubb described Gladstein as having three layers. Asgard, Jotunheim, and then finally Nidvelir. So Asgard, he does have that as being the highest of the planes, in other words, the one closest to the astral plane. He describes features called earthbergs, huge masses of earth and rock that flow upon a great river of dirt and rock and earth. Now, it's said that the underside of these earthbergs are set on fire, and they didn't always necessarily flow like next to each other. Sometimes you'd have earthbergs that were uh, seemed to be floating in the air. And because of this, the plane is often pictured as having a reddish glow to it. However, uh, gods or powerful beings could alter the climate and lighting conditions of their realms to make it look more uh, like Earth or like a prime material plane. Now, these uh, huge earthbergs are constantly moving and shifting around, and sometimes they'll collide, causing earthquakes and landslides. And the reason that he pictures this as being such a chaotic place is because Gladsheim is on the border with of Limbo, and Limbo in Manual of the Plains as pictured as being this extremely chaotic realm uh, where things just kind of form and unform, and we'll, we'll probably get to Limbo uh, some, somewhere down the line. Now, entry to the Plains of Gladsheim is accomplished through wells, and if you were going to enter it, you would look like you were rising up from a well. If you were going to leave a plane, you would go down through a well. So the first of the three planes... Asgard, is where he pictures as the the home to most of the Norse gods. And as mentioned before, it is uh, divided into uh, several realms, including Alfheim, Jotunheim, and Vanaheim. Alfheim is ruled by Frey, or Freyr, and he is the uh, one of the Norse gods of peace and fertility, and he is attended to by the by elven spirits. Vanaheim is home to Freya, and she is a Norse goddess of love and beauty. Also, she has a an association with cats. It's said she rides a, a chariot pulled by cats. Jotunheim is very mountainous, and it's ruled by Utgard Loki. Now, Manual of the Plains does mention that the king of these giants is skilled with illusions, and that actually matches Norse mythology quite well. There is a story about how Thor, Loki, and Thor's two human servants, uh, Thothi and Roskva, had traveled to uh, Jotunheim, and they're put through various trials. One of them, uh, Utgard Loki, challenges Thor to lift up a cat. And this cat seemed, well, a lot heavier than expected, and Thor could only get one of the paws of the cat um, up from the ground. And another challenge Thor had to do is he they challenged to see if he could 
uh, empty out a drinking horn. But no matter how much Thor drank, he couldn't get it to empty. And after the encounters, Utgard Loki admits that he was using illusions. The cat that Thor was trying to pick up was actually the Midgard Serpent, a great serpent that was believed to circle around the world. And since Thor was able to get a paw, just lift it up a little bit, that actually concerned the giants that Thor was strong enough to do that. Now, the drinking horn, well, that was actually connected to the oceans. And since Thor drank so much of the ocean, that's what caused the tides. And so again, that was another thing that kind of concerned the giants that Thor was able to do this. And after the encounter is over and they leave the uh, Jotunheim, Utgard Loki actually admits that it's probably best that they don't uh, encounter each other again. Now also, uh, Manual of the Plains does mention that the giants of Jotunheim are significantly stronger and smarter than their their uh, prime material plane counterparts. So it's not unusual in this realm to run into giants that have the ability of a cleric, an illusionist, or both. And the illusionist class does actually work very well, because uh, any old school gamers, you may remember in first edition, you had two different types of wizards. You had the, the magic user, and that was your general mage who could pretty much cast any spell he wanted to, uh, that or that he could care to learn. And then you had the illusionist, who uh, they specialized in just illusions. So they had a different spell list than that of the uh, the magic user. And of course, second edition would change that where there was just one type of wizard, but it was possible to specialize in certain schools of magic, and illusionist was one of them. Next, Musfelheim. And this is pictured as a realm where the earthbergs are actually flipped upside down. So you've got the fiery part on top, and this is, of course, where the fire giants live. Also, traveling through this realm is extremely dangerous. It's like being on the elemental plane of fire. So if you want to travel through Musfelheim, you better make sure you've got a ring of fire resistance for everybody, or at least some very powerful magic to protect you. And finally, the third layer, Nidvalar. But this realm is described as being like a cave because the earthbergs are so close together. And this is where uh, Dref Grub pictures the dwarves and dark elves residing. Manual of the Plains does also mention several other gods here as well. First, Bast, the Egyptian cat goddess, also is said to have a realm here. I don't know, since uh, she is a goddess of cats, who knows, maybe uh, maybe Freya took a liking to her and decided to let her settle in, in, in the realm. Now, she might seem out of place, but when you look at how Bast was pictured in the early days of the Egyptian uh, kingdoms, it actually does make sense because her head was not that of a regular domesticated cat, but rather that of a lioness. And 
and she was also had the function of being a goddess of war, the protector of the pharaoh, and it was also said she could help protect against disease and evil spirits. So Bast's realm is described as being a city overgrown with vines at the edge of a desert, and it's said to be the home of some wild parties. But why wild parties? Does this make sense? Actually, it does, because we know that you know the Norse were fond of drinking, and uh, there would be times where they would actually have ritualized drinking gatherings. I was about to say contests, but it wasn't really, they're not really considered contests. But uh, Norsemen were known to have a drinking ritual called the Sumble. And this is where uh, the warriors would gather around and they'd pass a horn of mead. And when it was your turn to have the horn, you could make an oath. You could also boast about something you did. So this was a good time for the warriors to gather around and brag about their many adventures and some of the brave feats they had accomplished. So that's something you could maybe you could work into your campaign. But this idea of Bast hosting wild parties, not that far-fetched. Because according to one Greek historian, Herodotus, there was a city in ancient Egypt called Bubatis. Bubastis? Okay, I think it's pronounced Bubastis. <laughs> we'll go with that. But they held a great celebration every year in honor of Bast. During this festival, women would dance and play music, and there was also a lot of drinking. So this was not a festival for the children. This was an adult thing. There's a couple of Hindu gods that also make their home here. First is Lakshmi, and this is the Hindu goddess of wealth and beauty. It's said that she has a temple far from the realm of Bast, so that way the goddess's parties wouldn't disturb her. In Hinduism, she's worshipped on an important holiday called Diwali, and this is a festival that usually takes place in late mid to late October or early November, so around the time of Halloween. I remember learning a little bit about this from a, well, there was this TV show I used to watch called Outsourced. It was a TV series about an American uh, who was living in India because he was the supervisor of a, a call center called Mid-America Novelties. And they dealed in things like whippy cushions and fake vomit, you know, practical joke-type items. And during one of the episodes, I remember uh, they were talking a little bit about Diwali. Um, his Indian uh, workers were trying to explain the holiday to him, and he said, so it's kind of like a combination of Christmas and Star Wars? So that's how he would, had interpreted it. Because... Diwali is said to be a festival celebrating the triumph of good over evil, light over dark, and knowledge over ignorance. Another deity we see here is Kartikeya. 
this is the Hindu god of war and victory. So very much uh, a fitting match for this plane. He is pictured as a youthful warrior armed with many weapons. And one of his weapons was called the Vel, a divine spear. And he is described as living in a palace surrounded by a lake of milk. Finally, Manual of the Plains does mention two Japanese deities here. First, Hachimin. This is the Japanese god of war and archery. And it was said that he was worshipped by a samurai. And finally, there is Okuni Nushi. He was said to be the master of the earth and also a god of magic, nation building, and medicine. So, how might we use Gladsheim in a Dungeons & Dragons campaign? Now, I think there's lots of opportunities for adventures here. Because, remember, Asgard is said to be uh, not far from Jotunheim. So, the players could have to travel in there to fight various giants. One thing that I think would be actually very interesting, you are some old-school gamers out there, might remember there was a classic D&D series called Against the Giants. I've played through the adventure a couple times. It's a really fun, well-written adventure that consists of three parts. In the first part, you're fighting against the hill giants. The second part, you're fighting against the frost giants. And then the final part is against the fire giants. So it might be kind of fun to do this adventure, but have it that they're at Jotunheim instead of a prime material plane. Because remember, since the giants here were said to have access to magic, you're going to encounter more giants that have spellcasting abilities. So that could be a a very fun and challenging way to do a new spin on a classic module. They could also attend one of Bast's parties. So there's lots of nasty things I could think to do to your player characters here. Uh, They could very easily get drunk and then have that as a hook for an adventure. Uh, Maybe uh, one of the players has a little bit too much to drink and then goes up to Bast and starts, you know, petting her head and going, Who's a good kitty? Who's a good kitty? And Bast might get offended by that and send them on a little quest in order to uh, get her forgiveness. Now, since Bast was also associated with uh, protection from evil spirits and disease, maybe the players need to seek her out or go to her temple to get assistance in crafting a powerful magic item used to protect the the king or the the, the land they serve against a, a plague. This would be more protection, though, because as far as I could tell, she doesn't necessarily have any relation to curing diseases, just defending against them. But what if there is this great plague or disease that is striking your land? Well, that is actually where Okuni Nushi could come in handy. 
remember, he is the god of medicine. So maybe the players might need to uh, go and seek out his help in getting a cure for this disease. Now, since there are dwarves here on their own plane, that also gives you a lot of potential. Because remember, in, in Norse mythology, the dwarves were said to be expert craftsmen who created many powerful uh, weapons and useful items for the gods. So if you're having higher level characters, maybe they're in some grand quest and they have to defeat a legendary monster like the Tarrasque, or maybe there is an extremely powerful dragon that is invading their land and no one's able to stop it. Or maybe someone accidentally opened a plane to the abyss and now you've got Orcus or Demigoron or some other demon lord attacking their, their kingdom, kind of like in Throne of Bloodstone. Maybe the players might need to travel to this realm in order to get assistance from the dwarves to create a powerful weapon that they need to defeat the the main uh, antagonist of your campaign. Now this would certainly be challenging because, you know, first they'd have to arrive in Asgard, then they would have to travel to Muspelheim, survive the fires there, and then finally they'd have to get to the lowest layer, the lowest level, and find the dwarves and get their assistance. So their assistance, though, might not come cheap. They could very well demand some service of the characters, or maybe this weapon that they need to forge, it might require seemingly impossible ingredients, like the breath of a cat, or the foot of a mountain. So something weird like that, and the players have to try to find a way to obtain those items to make this powerful weapon or artifact. Well, I think it's time to draw this episode to a close. So hopefully uh, gave you some good ideas for your campaign. Like to thank you all for tuning in. Have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.